0: Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. All right, good evening. Glad to see you all here. We got ground to cover. Um, You got to listen fast because I'm going to talk fast. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Thank you, Lord, that you've um, given us this opportunity to be in your word again that you you promised that your your words will never ever return void. So in spite of the teacher and maybe in spite of the students your words are powerful and can change lives. So we ask for that this evening as we look at the the guidance that was given by Paul to the church at Thessalonica and we know that they struggled and we know that we struggle in lots of different areas. Um, so I, I ask that, um, that you'll, you'll give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what, what you've put in your word. And we ask this in your name. Amen. If I could ask my wife to get my water bottle, I would really appreciate that. I think it's in my chair, but if not oh boy here we go thank you dear Uh, and Merry Christmas to you Uh, (laughs) all right so we have been in the last four weeks studying the book of first Thessalonians we'll wrap it up tonight with chapter five just a little bit of review as we go back, we talked about the fact that Paul was in Thessalonica for only three Sabbaths. I think that's important to remember as we look at the topics that he discusses because he goes all over the place. remember they they uh, being Paul and Silas and Timothy were there, probably in 49 AD, Uh, and then they make their way, Paul makes his way from there uh, through several towns, getting beat up and kicked out of town, (laughs) till he ends up in Corinth. Timothy goes back to Thessalonica, finds out how things are going, and then brings a report back to Paul, and that is what we've studied in the book of 1 Thessalonians, is Paul's letter back to the church. Based on what Timothy told him. So, think about that. If Timothy was not a faithful witness, Paul would have totally misjudged how the believers were doing there. So, Timothy's role, while he didn't write anything here, was critical for Paul to be able to understand where the church stood. What was good? Where did they struggle? Where do they have misunderstandings? Where do they need to grow? And like any group of young Christians, they always have a place where they need to grow, right? So that was Paul's heart. He loved them intensely. Just like all the churches that he wrote to, he loved the the way an apostle does. When you're a parent and you give birth, generally you love your children. Sometimes you don't always love your children, but you always say that, right? <laughs> well, so, so here's Paul. He gave birth to this church, and he loves them as if they were his children. And so because he loves them, he wants to encourage, to build up, to cheer up, and to stir up. He uses that phrase in another book of his, by the way. This church, so that they can grow closer to the image that God has for them. So we've looked at that and realized that that all this ground that we've covered over the last several weeks was to a very young group of believers. So to summarize the chapters that we've already covered, chapter 1... I would use the word salvation. Chapter two, service. Chapter three, sanctification. Growing. And now I've started a pattern. You see this alliteration, right? All the S's. I have to come up with a description for chapter four that starts with an S. So, I didn't have to think too long, but there's really two two ideas in this chapter. Oh boy, sexual purity and what we call the rapture or the snatching away. I've done it. all S's. <laughs> so tonight, we're, we're going to tackle a, a kind of a continuation of Chapter Four as he moves into Chapter Five, and then Chapter Five wraps up with a, a whole series of admonitions to the church so this is where we're starting tonight is to to look at um, The the topics that got us here, and now we're we're moving on from this idea of the snatching away, we call the rapture, the Greek word is the word hapazo. It means to pull out or to snatch out, sometimes by force. And that's what we're looking for. So as we get started tonight, I'm going to take you to, you're going to say, why is he going there? But please just go with me on this, if you would. Um, Go to Luke chapter... Four, and we're gonna we're gonna start down this path. And it was interesting. Uh, one of the young men looked at the board tonight, and he said, "Are you doing math?" Because he was concerned. Yeah, I was one of yours. Um, <laughs> no, we're not doing math. <laughs> Although Jesus did say. How many times should you forgive? Seven 70 times 7, which was not a made up number. It was the number of years that the children of Israel failed to give the sabbatical years to the land. <laughs> There's definitely a connection there. Okay, Luke chapter 4, I want to read just a couple verses and then we're going to we're going to jump back. So, Luke chapter 4. Um and we're in verse 16. Ah, let's go back to 14. I want to set the stage. Luke 4:14. 4, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's important. And news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Well, that won't happen after a little bit of time. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth. You know Nazareth, right? This time of year. Where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. That was the typical position for a teacher. I think it's interesting that they had the scroll of Isaiah there ready to read because it was a Sabbath. And the books of the, of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And this comes from Isaiah 61, and we're going to go there in a second. So verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord was upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Why? Okay. So this is a quote from Isaiah 61. So, if you would, go back to the book of Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. Just to help you out. Isaiah 61, and this is where he's quoting from. And I think it's important to see what he is doing here when he read from the scroll of Isaiah. So here's Isaiah 61, verse 1. This, this should sound familiar. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Yes, yes. <laughs> He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all... Wait a minute. He didn't read that, did he? He stopped. Why? He stopped before it said the day of vengeance of our God because they weren't there yet. Jesus was parsing scripture as he read it. He read as far as was needed and he stopped. But yet to come is Isaiah's prophecy, which says the day of vengeance of our God, that is yet coming, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, and then we can go on. It's important to see what Jesus did. He read the scripture with a mind to where they were that day and then where Isaiah was saying they were going okay got the got the picture okay so since you're in the the old testament go with me to the book of daniel and we're going to take a look at what i think is one of the most amazing passages of scripture and I've tried to help you with some pictures, so if you would find a handout that looks like this. it's a single page. See if you can find it. I know it's a challenge. There's three pages there, and <laughs> okay? So I'm, I'm going to try to walk you through the picture that's up here on the board, and we're going to fill it in because it's important as we look at where we're going at the beginning of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Okay? So Daniel 9, and sometime I'd love to do a study of the book of Daniel because it's just fascinating. Daniel becomes the, the most important person in, the, in two different kingdoms the Babylonian kingdom, and then the Persian kingdom, right? His his ministry in exile spanned a huge part of two major empires. We're going to be here in chapter 9. And so Daniel's praying at the beginning of chapter 9. Gabriel, the angel, comes to him in the middle of his prayer and interrupts him. So, it better be something important, right, if you get interrupted in prayer. <laughs> well, this is a message from God, and we're, I want to read these verses, and then we're going to come back and unpack them. So, starting in Daniel 9, verse 24. And maybe you've read this and understand it already, but I'm going to try to draw some new, new ideas from this, okay? So, Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for uh, iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place—that's a lot of stuff. Right? That was verse 24. Verse 25, and and verse 24 is kind of the scope of this entire prophecy that Daniel is laying out. You know, you look at the book of Daniel, and and at the bottom of this page. If you look, you will see a picture of a, of a statue of different metals, right? The gold, the silver, the brass, the iron, and then feet of iron and clay. And those represent different uh, dynasties. So in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, you see these pictures of, of uh, empires yet to come. Babylon, Persia, Greece... Rome and then Rome again right so Daniel lays this all out and and some people really struggle with the book of Daniel because they say well Daniel can't have predicted all this stuff so far in advance and I think I quoted this wrong the other week I said Isaiah but Daniel a lot of (laughs) left-leaning biblical scholars want to say, oh no, Daniel was written much, much later. (laughs) You know, he wrote it after these things happened. Well, let me tell you how we know at least how old the book of Daniel is, because it is included in the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. That was written between 285 and 246 B.C. Think about that for a second. And you realize that that was all written and translated before what a lot of scholars say Daniel was written. So what they're telling you is just pure hogwash. They're just trying to not accept Daniel for who he is and was. Sorry. Okay, so we read verse 24. This is the scope of this whole prophecy. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern if somebody tells you, Mike, you need to know this. Just like the wise men skit that we did a couple weeks ago. You need to know this. Daniel is telling the reader, you need to know this. This is not optional. Paul was telling the believers in Thessalonica, this is not optional. Okay? So, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So that's the first part of Daniel's prophecy. He prophesies what he refers to as a week. A week is a week of years. right? So he has 70 weeks, total of 490 years in this prophecy. I know we're not in 1 Thessalonians, but we're going to get there. And the foundation to get there is really important. So hang with me. So verse 25 talks about the first 69 of these 70 weeks that Daniel prophesies. Verse 26, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So that's between week 69 and week 70 in Daniel's prophecy. And then verse 27 is the 70th of those weeks. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there, right? So go back to verse 24. He talks about 70 70 weeks. 70 weeks where each week is seven years Becomes 490 years. Okay? I know, Rodney, that's tough math. 70 times 7. I saw you frowning. I was like, oh man, I can't do that in my head. Okay. (laughs) So this this is supposed to be a picture of, and I'm going to erase a little bit of this, a picture of what Daniel prophesied. Okay? So Daniel talks about a period of time that he calls 69 weeks. And in this prophecy, let's read the scope of it again. Verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So who is this for? It's for... God's chosen people, the Jews, and it's for God's chosen city, Jerusalem. Get that in your mind because this is critical to understanding what Paul is doing in Thessalonica in the letter to the Thessalonians so that they understand, right? What we're talking about here is all focused on the Jews. This is a Jewish prophecy. Written by a Jew to the Jews, okay. So get that in your mind (sighs) to finish now. And he lists a group of things, and you got to think here have these been fulfilled yet? To finish the transgression, no, not done. To make an end of sin, definitely not done. (laughs) To make atonement for iniquity, well, yeah. Did Jesus hang on a cross for me? He made atonement for my iniquity. Now I have to accept that. So out of the first three, there's one that was fulfilled. The next one, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Nope, not done yet. To seal up vision and prophecy. No. <laughs> and to anoint the most holy place. Okay, so... Before we go there, what, what major holiday did we just celebrate starting last Thursday? You all know? Hanukkah. You know the history of Hanukkah? Sure, I've heard the Adam Sandler song. Eight crazy nights. No, that's that's got less to do with it than you know. So, what's the history behind Hanukkah? Well, there was a Greek ruler, Antiochus the Fourth, Epiphanes. And he, in in conquering Jerusalem, um, decided that he would do something. Because as a Greek, he wanted to make Jerusalem be Greek. So what did he do? He went into the holy place. I'm sorry, the holy of holies. Meaning he'd have to go through the holy place. And on the altar there, he sacrificed a pig. Okay, that should raise red flags to you. That's, you know, (laughs) pork is not a kosher food. So not only there did he do that, he erected a statue to Zeus, among other things. Those are kind of the biggies. And so, in this happened in 167 B.C. On his birthday, he did this. And this event has been referred to as the abomination of desolation. You ever heard that term? or the abomination that causes desolation. I mean, there is very few things that you could do that would be less desecrating than to sacrifice a pig on the altar and erect a statue of Zeus. This this event led to, and I misspelled that right, Maccabean revolt, the Maccabees, Judas Maccabee and his brothers, led a revolt that by 164 B.C. overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes. And and Epiphanes means basically God among you. (laughs) That's how he viewed himself as God. The word on the street, they didn't call him Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes which means like madman. So in three years, this abomination of desolation was cleared. The Maccabean revolt brought the temple back. They, they cleansed what they could. They threw away the rest, and they built new utensils for the temple. And in the book of John, uh, chapter 10, it talks about the, the uh, festival of rededication of the temple. That's what he's, John is talking about is this. I bring it up because this thing called the abomination of desolation <clears throat> had already happened. Just like a lot of prophecies in Scripture, some prophecies happen multiple times. And this one will. And I bring this up because you think about Hanukkah, and you may think about, well, you know, they had enough oil that they didn't have enough, it appeared, but they had enough to light the lamps in the menorah for eight nights. That's, That's definitely a miracle. But that's not the biggest miracle of Hanukkah the cleansing and the restoration of the temple is far bigger than eight nights of oil for the lambs. I think. Because this is, this is one of those critical events that brought the Jews back into the temple. Okay? So you need to know that name, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now I got sidetracked a little bit. This from from, from verse 24 and to anoint the most holy place. That's how I got there. (laughs) So Daniel's talking about something that for him was yet future. right? But we see this in 167 to 164. Antiochus did this on his birthday, and it was cleansed on his birthday in 164 B.C. That's, to me, the big story of Hanukkah. But it's important that we get that idea as we move into verse 25. So, here we go. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, so we're going to start to fill in some pieces of our picture here. How does this period of 69 weeks start It starts with what? A decree to restore and rebuild what? The temple? No. Jerusalem. When did this happen? Y'all should know this date. It's on your paper, thank you Rodney. I appreciate that. Now, now you all know. So this happened, and I, I'm indebted to a gentleman by the name of Sir Robert Anderson that wrote a book. This book was written in, I think 1897 it's called The Coming Prince and what he did was to go through all of the chronology of this chart that I'm gonna put up here on the board okay so on on the BWC Equip Facebook page I will put a PDF copy of this book out there it won't cost you a cent (laughs) to download that and read it if you want it is fascinating so you're just getting the Cliff Notes version tonight. There's a lot more in that book if you want to download it. Okay, so there were actually four different decrees, and this confuses people. In, so when, when the Jews came back, uh, 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 when Cyrus said that the, they could come back and rebuild the city, right, that's the book of Ezra, And then the book of Nehemiah is something else, rebuilding... Sorry, they came back and rebuilt the temple first. And then they had to rebuild the city. That's Ezra and Nehemiah. And rebuilding the the, the temple, you know, they talked about having to build with one hand and fight off the enemies with the other hand with a sword. That wouldn't be really good building technique. um, But that's apparently what they had to do. Anyway, there were... Four decrees to rebuild the temple: Cyrus in Ezra 1, Darius or Darius in Ezra 6, and then Artaxerxes, Longemanus in Ezra chapter 7. Those were all to rebuild the temple. What does this prophecy say to do? What a decree to rebuild and restore what Jerusalem, not the temple there is one particular decree by uh, a fellow named Artaxerxes Longimanus and this happened, this decree and again thanks to Sir Robert Anderson this was March 14 445 BC. Okay, so we know that date. You're saying, why do I have to know this stuff? Just hang with me, hang with me. <laughs> so going on in verse 25, from the decree to issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So many, many times, Jesus, in his ministry, people would come to him, they want to make him king. They'd want to anoint him. And what did he say over and over? My time is not yet at hand. Right? Until one particular day, the day that he rode into Jerusalem, coming down off the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and coming in the Eastern Gate, he rode a donkey into the city on purpose we call it the triumphal entry or we call it Palm Sunday but he arranged that date it wasn't by happenstance that he came into the city and said I am the Mashiach Nagid I am Messiah the Prince and we can uh, people you know will argue about dates on this but I'm going to give you a date as to when that happened So. I'm going to say that this is the triumphal entry and the date April 6 32 AD different scholars have different dates the problem is that when people try to date this they always say well good good Friday is on Friday that's the day Jesus was crucified Well. I happen to believe Jesus was crucified on Wednesday, not on Friday. Because it's tough to get three days between Friday and Sunday, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, people have trouble with dating because of that mindset that it happened on Friday. So we'll get past that. So from March 14th, 445 B.C. to April 6th, 32 A.D. is how long? And if you look on your sheet, the... This prophecy, it says there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay? So, seven weeks of years, seven times seven is 49, and then 62 weeks of years. This, This is conjecture that this seven weeks is how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem that's that's not a given but regardless this is this period of time is 483 years well a couple things to realize in bible times they had 360 day years 12 30 day months until 701 bc when the planet mars came close enough to the earth in their rotational orbits and they changed energy and the Earth's rotation turned into 365 and a quarter days. But in Bible times, 360 days was a year. So Sir Robert Anderson did the math on this, okay? And what he found out was counting leap years and using 360 day years, the time from here to here is 173,880 days. That's on the calendar. Can't argue with that. You look at Daniel's prophecy and you know how far it is from here to here? 173,880 days. Daniel's margin for error was zero. To me this is one of those most amazing prophecies that God laid out in it in in before any of this happened, that this is what was going to go on to go from this decree to the triumphal entry. Why is that important? Well, because that gets us to the place that Jesus, before he rode into the city, he looked out over the city and he wept. It was his triumphal entry. Why did he weep? Because he said, I wish that the Jewish people realized on this-thy day that their Messiah was riding into the city. They rejected Him, right? What is that after, after here? The death, burial, and resurrection. That ushers in a whole new period of time. This period right here that I'll call the church age. Some people call it the age of grace, but grace has always been prevalent. It's just more prevalent during this period of time. Okay, so who is this focused on? The Jews. Who is this focused on? Believers. Could be Jews. Could be Gentile. It's focused on believers in in Messiah, right? And then, then you go down to verse 27, and he talks about the 70th week. Tell me who that's focused on. It's focused on, who was this on? The Jews. This is us. Who was this last of the weeks focused on? It's focused on the Jews. God is going back to his promise to his people. So when, when Paul looks at to the Thessalonican church, and he he tells them these things about something called the day of the Lord coming, the day of God's judgment, that's this period of time right here. This is for the Jews. And it's described this way, that there's going to be three and a half years and three and a half years. Right? This period, I would call the tribulation this period I would call the great tribulation and now I'm gonna come back to this the abomination of desolation in the middle of this seven-year period at the start There was a a covenant made with this person called the Antichrist. It's not a really good name. It should be pseudo-Christ. Someone that pretends to be like Christ. That's Satan's plan all along, to pretend rather than to actually be. Right, Satan, I will be like the Most High. No, you can't. You want to be, but you can't. So he pretends in every possible way, and he makes us believe that nonsense sometimes. But right here in the middle of this, there's a covenant that is given between the Antichrist and the Jews for three and a half years. And then in the middle of that, that covenant is broken, and we see this thing called the abomination of desolation coming up again. Right? So at the end of this period, this is also called the time of Jacob's trouble this is, this is how uh, Jeremiah refers to it. We, what happens at the end of this period? The second coming. Jesus comes back with his saints for the battle of Armageddon. We've been on Mount Carmel and looked out over the Valley of Megiddo where it says that the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. That's a vicious war. Because that's a big valley. (laughs) That's right here. This is the Battle of Armageddon right there. And that ushers us into a thousand-year period that we call the Millennium where Jesus reigned on earth takes place right here Satan is bound at the end of that Satan is freed for a brief period of time to wreak as much havoc as he can right at this well I'm I'm gonna hit this in a second but at this point is called the great white throne judgment of unbelievers that's right here and then once that's over the earth is destroyed and we move into the new heavens and the new earth okay hallelujah yes where Max and I were talking last week he said oh is that when time ends and I said yes I think so because we were talking here the millennium is a thousand years We're still in chronological time here. But once we get to eternity, now, something to think about. If if you die and you're a believer and your body stays in the ground but your, your soul goes up to be in heaven, do you take on the same body that Jesus had? Because the Bible says that we'll be like him when we see him as he is. So... Does time really cease at that point for us? That's my conjecture, but I don't know. Okay, so, the reason I haven't completely filled in this picture yet is because there are different ideas of when when Jesus will come back in the air, as we read last week in chapter 4, for his believers. It says, The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and so will we be with the Lord. When does that happen? Okay, so it could be here and this is what's called the pre-tribulational rapture, right? Or it could be right here and this is called mid-trib. Or it could be somewhere in this period of time here. This is called pre-rath. Or it could be right here. This is called post-trib. Or it could be here. Post millennial. I'm not doing any of this justice, I'm sorry. (laughs) But you have to get the big picture. And and here's the thing, I'm I'm just gonna tell you that there are lots and lots of good scholars that hold to each of these different positions as to when the rapture, the Harpazo, will occur. (sighs) Pre-tribulational rapture. This happens to be the one that I believe, but you don't have to, okay? If we don't see it the same way, it's fine. You can buy me a cup of coffee and explain why you believe what you believe. Okay, but let me tell you, I want to give you some names so you know who holds these positions. Pre-Trib Rapture. Jimmy Swaggart, Robert Jeffress, J. Dwight Dwight Pentecost, Tim LaHaye, J. Vernon McGee, Perry Stone, Chuck Smith, Hal Lindsey, Jack Van Impey, Chuck Missler, Grant Jeffrey, Thomas Ice, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, and John Hagee. They all hold to this one, okay? You all know, know some of those names, right? So the, the, the uh, mid-trib position, um, Gleason Archer, Richard Ryder, Norman Harrison, James Buswell, and Harold Ockengay, you may know that last name. That's mid-trib. Pre-wrath. Here, somewhere in the in the middle, uh, before the wrath really begins, and we don't have a solid time on that, there was one Jewish believer, Mar- Marvin Rosenthal, that wrote the book about the the uh, pre-wrath rapture of the church. Um, if anybody wants to read it, I have it. <laughs> so, how about post-tribulational? I'll give you some names: Pat Robertson. Walter Martin, he was a lawyer and a biblical scholar. John Piper, George Ladd, Robert Gundry, Douglas Moo, Michael Brown. They're all post-tribulational rapture people. And then then you get into the group post-millennial. This one surprised me. John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, and Charles Finney. So I have I have a little difficulty with that because the First Thessalonians 4 says we're going to meet him in the air. And then it says that we will come with him. So we're going to be with him in the air and then we'll come back with him at the Battle of Armageddon. For, that, for the post-trib to work, they happen at the same time. Personally, I can't see that. But... Again, you can convince me as long as I get a free cup of coffee. And then, then there's a whole nother group called amillennialists. And they believe that none of this is going to happen. It's all figurative speech. It's all metaphor and simile. And it's just for you to become a better person. Okay, let me tell you. The pre-tribulational rapture of the church, for me, supports the idea that Jesus could come back any time. Did Paul believe that? I believe so. I believe he said it several different times. When we see this. So that's my personal opinion, that this will happen, that we, in fact, we need to read First Thessalonians 5 so we see some of these things. Man, I went off on a rabbit trail, didn't I? I'm sorry. Not really. I'm not really sorry. (laughs) Because, 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 if you don't see this big picture, it will not make sense what Paul is telling these believers that have been believers for how long? Three weeks. Okay, I've been a believer for over 60 years. Um... (laughs) And I still don't understand all of this stuff. Three weeks. And Paul is saying you should know this by now. All right. So now we're going to read 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, And the handouts that I've given you kind of support this whole timeline. All right. I can't go through each one of those. Uh, on On the handout that looks like this, On the back, there's a comparison of the rapture and the second coming. Two, to me, two totally different events. And then on the next page, rapture passages of Scripture, second coming passages of Scripture. Again, we don't have time to read those tonight. But it's there for, and I really hope that as we move past 1 Thessalonians that you don't, you don't throw these papers away. There's questions on here we haven't even talked about. Use them for your own study. Use them for your small group study. Or maybe we'll get together later and we'll do this again. <laughs> anyway, so 1 Thessalonians 5. Now that I've laid some of the groundwork, now as to the times and the epochs or seasons, brethren, So he's calling them believers. You have no need of anything to be written to you. They knew the Jewish festivals, the times and the seasons, right? They knew when those occurred. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just as a thief in the night. Okay, this really takes me back to my childhood because there was a popular movie at the time I grew up and it was called Thief in the Night. (laughs) All right, do we need to be concerned about that? We're we're going to read a little bit and, and see. Because I don't think he's talking about this. I think he's talking about this when he says the thief in the night. Okay, so let's read a little bit more. Verse three, while they're saying peace and safety. Well, watch the news and There's not a lot of peace and there's not a lot of safety out there right now. But in this first part of the tribulation, when the Antichrist makes a pact with the Jews for three and a half years, there will be peace and safety. And then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like the birth pangs upon a woman with child. Well, I've never given birth. I don't plan to. I don't think I could do it. (laughs) Yeah, I know, women all laugh at that. No man, Bill Cosby used to have this little comedy routine where he said, giving birth is like taking your lower lip and pulling it around to the back of your head. And that's probably not even close. Um, Birth pangs, they start slowly, I'm told, and then they start to increase, both in frequency and intensity. That's what Paul's saying here, that birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. So the people that that do not know about this, that it will come upon them as a thief in the night, they're in darkness. But Paul is saying in verse 4, believers, you're not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. We don't know when the rapture is going to happen, do we? We have lots and lots of ideas, and that's why I drew them on the board. Regardless, we know that it will happen. Jesus will come back for us. That's why I don't get uptight about, well, it's not going to happen here, it's going to happen here. I don't care. Does the fact that Jesus could come back tonight change the way you live? That's what is important to me. Okay, so in verse 4 he says, You're not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. He uses a, a figurative technique called chiasmus. Contrasting day and night, light and darkness. We are not of the night, we believers, we're not of the night, nor are we of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Wake up! The Thessalonian believers, some of them were just sitting on the top of a hillside, depending on people to take care of them, because they said, Jesus could come back any day. And Paul said, Yeah, but. And in English terms, that's called a yebuddle. You English teachers are going, Oh, no, it isn't. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Those are the people of the night. Paul says, You're not the people of the night. You're people of the day. You live in light, you do not live in darkness. You have been bought with a price. You are new. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul told that to the church in Corinth. So verse 7, For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Verse 8, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. What does that sound like? Ephesians chapter 6, the whole armor of God. I can't review that right now, but you can. Go to the end of Ephesians 6 and read the seven elements of the armor. And Paul's not saying, well, I'm going to pick and choose which ones I want. No, he says, put on the whole armor of God, right? Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. This is the verse that a lot of people use to say that the, the church will not go through the tribulation because we are not destined to wrath. Okay, That's just one verse. There's many, many others. But this is, this is kind of a key verse to support the pre-tribulational rapture. <sighs> but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, That whether we are awake or asleep, meaning we're living or we're dead. If we're living or dead, we may live together with him. That's the promise that we've all been given as believers in Jesus Christ. He is coming back. If you if you look at a Jewish wedding, oh boy. sorry about that. This is how it goes. A Hebrew wedding, the betrothal. The prospective, the prospective groom travels from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride, paying the purchase price and thus establishing the marriage covenant called the ketubah. The groom returns to his father's house and remains separate from his bride, during which time he prepares a living accommodation for his bride in his father's house. The groom comes for his bride at a time not known exactly to her. She lives in expectation until he surprises her on his return. His return with her to the, to the groom's father's house for the hoopah, the wedding ceremony, to consummate the marriage and to celebrate the wedding feast for the next seven days in the bridal chamber. Does that sound at all familiar to what we've just read? That's a Jewish wedding ceremony. (laughs) Can you see it in this picture? Jesus is coming back. And we can discuss, not argue, discuss when that's going to be. So the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, I have summarized on the last page of your handout. That looks like this. It's got a big number at the top Rodney. It's 22. Um, the last from verse 11 to verse 27 has 22 commandments that Paul gives to the believers at Thessalonica. And this is how we're going to finish up tonight. I'm going to read these just down this list. We're not, we don't have time to talk about them. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Esteem those who labor among you very highly in love. Live in peace with one another. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all men. And I threw in women just for, you know. Anyway. Don't repay evil for evil. Seek after that which is good for one another. Rejoice Always. Pray without ceasing. We could have a whole discussion about what that means. Do I pray when I got rear-ended while I was sitting in traffic in Evansville? In everything give thanks. This is God's will. Do not quench the spirit. Do you know what it means to quench metal? you've got this piece of metal all heated up. It's on a set of tongs. And the way that they give it hardness is they'll take that metal and they'll bang down in the water. And immediately it stops the heating process and puts this hard shell around the metal. That's quenching a piece of metal. And Paul says, do not quench. Do not put out the fire that was given you by the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Pray for those who minister to you. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Read this letter to all of the brethren. Okay. Down at the bottom of the page, it says, compare this to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I did a message about Four or five months ago, on that passage of scripture, and I'm reading this list, and it's like, Man, Paul repeated himself. Why? Because it's important. I used Michael as an example of greeting one another with a holy kiss. (laughs) If you remember that message, Paul has given this group of believers, new believers in Thessalonica. Some amazing commandments of how to follow and live Christianly. So, if we had another week, we would start the book of 3 Thessalonians. Yeah, 3rd. You know why I call it that? Because there was a forgery document that was written to make it look like Paul had written something. And in Second Thessalonians, as we call it, he is refuting that forgery by what he tells them. So if we had the time, we would do 3 Thessalonians. But we don't have that time tonight. So, big picture, I think it's important that we have this viewpoint of the whole panorama of Scripture given to us by the prophet Daniel to understand where we've been and where we're going. We're right smack in this period of time right here. We've been grafted in, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us incredibly. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us this incredible message from your word that we can understand how much you have in store for us. We ache to be with you, but as Paul said, what's better, to be here or to be with the Lord? You have something for each one of us to do. Help us to do it. Help us to be your ministers in the world in which we live, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we can. Thank you, Lord, that you love us in such a way that you would show us this whole picture in panorama view so that we know that you have a plan for each one of our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time. And we bless your name as the soon coming King. Hallelujah. And Maranatha. Amen. you for joining us this week until next time